you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. The book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'd like to read beginning at verse number 3 and think with you tonight on the thought is gain or success always a sign of God's blessing. Is success always a sign of God's blessing? In this passage, Paul is writing to the young preacher Timothy. He has some very practical words of instruction, words that are not only applicable to a preacher, but also to every Christian. There's so much here in God's Word. He covers the territory. So beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 6, reading at verse 3, the Scripture says, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine, by the way, that word, that last word, is a word that's despised by the ecumenist in our country. Uh, Groups like, uh, uh, what is that men's group, Uh, what is it called? Uh, what is it? Yeah, promise keepers. Uh, groups like that. Uh, I'll guarantee you, they don't like this word doctrine. Uh, they keep saying we need to tear all the walls of doctrine down, the things that divide us, and let's just get together on Jesus. Well, I have news for you and them as well, and that is you do not have the Jesus of the Bible If you tear down the doctrine of the Bible relative to him. And so Paul is careful to say to Timothy uh, concerning and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. Uh, That is doctrine according to godliness. Notice this word. I pointed it out to you before. The word according coming from a word in the language of the New Testament that means down upon, that is controlled by. Godliness is controlled and directed by doctrine. When you do away with doctrine, you might as well kiss godliness goodbye. And you see that in so many movements in our religious world today. Oh, they'll talk about Jesus and then live like the devil, pardon my expression. Uh, They uh, can uh, jitterbug, uh, they can dance in the streets, uh, they can swing and sway their hips, they can uh, uh, do the thump, thump of the rock music of the day, and yet, if you knew what the Bible said, that's what the word doctrine means. It means teaching. The teaching that comes out of God's Word. And so uh, Paul is saying to Timothy, uh, hang on to the doctrine. By the way, he goes on at verse 4. He says he is proud. That is the man who doesn't teach these wholesome words and the doctrine. He is proud. That means he is self-willed. I mean, his opinion is higher than what God has given in his word. Uh, You hear that expressed so often. Well, I know the Bible says so-and-so, but I think, I 
think. I know the verse says, but I think. And so you get in trouble when you run that route. So Paul says, this one is proud, knowing nothing. That doesn't mean he's an ignoramus as far as worldly knowledge is concerned. But it does mean that he doesn't know anything about the truth that God has revealed in the doctrine of the Word of God. He is proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds. You know, perverse disputings. that ring a bell with you? I mean, church groups, religious groups. Debating as to whether or not a homosexual or a lesbian ought to be ordained to the ministry. And ought to pastor a church. Can you imagine even having to argue the point if people knew the doctrine of the Word of God? Say amen. I believe then that Paul is simply saying to Timothy, hang on to the truth that I have taught you and that is revealed. They're perverse. They bring about perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds. And watch this. And destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Now here Paul says to young Timothy that a man can suppose that gain is godliness, but that is not necessarily the case. We live in a success-oriented age. Constantly from the beginning of a child's education and all that he's influenced by in the world around him and the business community, there is that constant driving for success. Now, success in the terms of the world is a far different thing than what God calls success. I remember the words of the late Dr. George Truitt, who was born, by the way, right up here in uh, uh, Hayesville, North Carolina. Dr. Truitt said, the greatest knowledge is to know the will of God. And the greatest achievement is to do the will of God. In other words, that success that men look for in the world, they see dollar marks. They see uh, uh, the fancy sports car. They, say, they see uh, the mansion-like dwelling place. They see the finest of everything, and the world looks at that individual and says, Boy, I'll tell you, that guy is a real success, when in the eyes of God, he may be a total flop, a total failure. So when the whole story is told, and when all the calculations are made, as men stand before God, a lot of fellows and a lot of people who are counted a success in this world will be named a failure. So then we live in this success-oriented society. Uh, in other words, uh, we have the idea that's transferred over into the world of the church. 
And we get the idea that success is the sign of God's blessing. Now, how does the average religionist determine success? Big buildings, a lot of money, big crowds. But yet again, is that really what determines a man having gained in God's sight? Not at all. The opposite of what these perverse men would suppose, that gain is godliness. Oftentimes gain is nothing short of ungodliness. Immediate gain doesn't assure one of ultimate goodness. And a lot of folks somehow have gotten the idea, maybe from the, some of the things that are found in the Old Testament, the Lord promised material blessing indeed to Israel if they would be obedient and walk according to His law. But that was a promise that was given to the Israelite who was, God, who was designated as God's covenant people. Now, all these fellows like Hagen and Copeland and Hen and all the rest. Uh, what's that other joker that uh, uh, makes such... Uh, well, he's a comedian, actually, a preacher. And uh, I'm trying to find out who's been watching. Uh, I can't even think of his name right now. But anyway, they're constantly saying, if you're right with God, God will make you wealthy. Uh, they uh, have the finest attire. They, uh, they uh, have the swankiest outfits. And therefore, they would have the world to look and say, hey, boy, I'll tell you, God must really, his blessing and his approval must be on these. But back up a minute. What about the doctrine? What about the truth that these are often heard to spew from their mouths that are literally contrary to so much that the word of God teaches? Again then, you remember the instance of Saul when after having been commissioned to go over and destroy the Amalekites, disobeyed the Lord. And when God's man confronted him, he reminded Saul that though he had spared these for a sacrifice, as Saul would say, Yet Samuel said, has the, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To, not, to disobey is worse than witchcraft and idolatry. And then you'll recall that uh, the, Samuel said to Saul something like this. When thou wast little in thine own eyes, God gave you a kingdom. But now in his apparent success as the leader in Israel, that immediate success, he somehow had the idea that God was blessing him and God's approval was indeed upon him. Isn't it strange that we feel like when things are moving along materially well, that that's an indication that God blesses? What about that poverty-stricken Christian in another country? What about that Christian that just lives from hand to mouth, from God's hand to their mouth? 
What about those people who are in, in, in destitute condition? And yet there is a love for the Lord. There is a yieldedness to Him. What about those who are incarcerated in prisons in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, godless countries because of their faith in the Lord Jesus? Would you say that, boy, I'll tell you, God blessing them, the average Christian wouldn't. But yet any place of God's appointment is God's place of blessing for us. I'm glad Paul, though not a success in the eyes of the world, yet wound up in jail, got the daylights beat out of him time and again, left for dead, had to escape down a wall, let down in a basket to even spare his own life. And yet the world would look at a fellow like that and say, <laughs> he's not very successful, is he? But oh, Paul would say at a later time, the things that were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. And so then, uh, this uh, success-oriented age in which we live, uh, somehow we have the idea that if it's big, if it's wealthy, if it's humongous, if everybody's going to it, then certainly it must be uh, God's blessing. Well, if crowds is the thing that says God's touches on it, Check Bourbon Street out during Mardi Gras. Crowds that you can't even get through. Now, I haven't been there. I've seen some of the reports on television. Has anybody, anybody here been there? Yeah, Carolyn has been. No, she hadn't either. <laughs> but the, the whole truth is, crowds, is that it? Oh, my friend, listen to me. The whole story is we have unconsciously we have unconsciously absorbed that philosophy that is so prevalent in our world. That philosophy that says, if it feels right, it can't be wrong. You ever hear that? If it feels right, it can't be wrong. That old secular love song that said, it, uh, it, it feels, uh, how's it go? Uh, uh, how could it be wrong if it feels so right? The whole story is when you judge right and wrong on the basis of your depraved senses, you're 99% of the time going to go in the wrong direction. We have that philosophy that the church world is absorbed, and it's the philosophy says if it's big, it's got to be better. Even back during the days of the Civil War, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest is said to have uh, made this saying famous, and he is credited with it at least. Bedford Forrest used to say, the fellow that gets there firstest with the mostest, he's the guy that's going to win. And that's the philosophy of our world. If you've got more, then boy, I'll tell you, you've succeeded. If you get there first, then you have succeeded. But what of the fellow who's running on, on the track? He's a runner. A he's, he's running a race. He has certain rules that he has to follow. Am I right? Yet that fellow could finish before all of the rest of the track stars, but he would not be crowned as the winner. 
if he cut corners, if he cut across the track, for example, about three-fourths of the way down and went to the other side instead of following the prescribed place that he is to run. And yet that's what the church world has somehow, oddly and strangely enough, that philosophy the church world has adopted. Well, we'll just cut a few corners here. And we'll get ahead and we'll have great gain and we'll have great success. You know, this philosophy, as big as better, has literally permeated not only the church world, but every facet of society. For example, the business world. You know what's happening in the business world? Merger, buyouts, uh, uh, consolidation, federation. Let's do away with the little guy and the little business and let's just bring it all together under one great big roof. Not only in the world of business, but in the world of education. I think one of the main problems in the educational world, if you want to know my opinion, I'm going to give it to you whether you want it or not. I think schools have gotten too big. You take schools that have thousands of students. I'm talking about high schools now. Listen, how in the world can a teacher or teachers manage thousands of students like the shootings and the killings that occurred? Ah, oh, listen, uh, uh, I'm glad I came up in the day when the 5th, 6th, and 7th grade is in the same room. Well, they were consolidating then but didn't have much to consolidate. But the truth is, even the education world saying, let's make it big. Let's do away with this little school and this community place over here. And let's put everybody under one big roof. The world of religions doing the same thing. The religions of the world are saying, hey, uh, let's do away with all of these religious ideas. And let's come together under one great big umbrella. Let's become one. Let's just have what, and listen, sooner or later that's going to happen in totality. One of these days a false prophet is going to come on the scene who works along with a one world ruler who is pushing for this one world system and the religions of the world will be headed under one religious, uh, uh, one religious rule. I think of the world of agriculture. All of the little farms, you don't see that like you used to. Many a fellow just has to go out of business, has to sell out. He can't compete with the big conglomerates. He cannot compete with that uh, monstrosity up there who has a stranglehold on that fellow. Everything coming under one control. Even now, the government tells a farmer what he can plant, what he can't what part of his land he can use and what he can't use. So what we've got is this same permeating philosophy that says, let's everybody get together. Let me mention one more in the world of economics. Fast is our world coming to a one-world monetary system. Already in the making, already underway. The whole story is in Europe it's happening now. Little by little, countries in Europe are saying, hey, we want the euro dollar. 
we want that we want the same currency that everybody else has and believe you me it wouldn't take very long for that to spread all over this world and under the rule of the antichrist the one world ruler there will be a one world government a one world religion a one world monetary system a one world court system you can see that in the shadows now United Nations. In other words, now, well, I, I don't want to get on that or I'll stay there too long. Let me move on. The whole truth then is there is that desire of oneness. You know, somebody says history repeats itself. And what's happening today is nothing new. Back in Genesis chapter 11, old Nimrod got all everybody together. And they were going to build a one tower that would reach up into the heavens where would be conducted a one type of worship and religion. There would be a one world government in the cities. There would be, a one, there would be one language. Now, this is, uh, uh, this is uh, Burroughs' idea. I can't prove this in the Bible, but I've, I've got an idea that English is fast becoming the language of the world. My son, who is a pilot, as you know, says that, listen, you, uh, when, when the foreign fellows fly into this country, they have to, they have to be able to speak some English. And uh, you have to be able to talk back to them in English. They have to understand their landing instruction. All around, you go to any country almost in the world, and you'll find somebody who speaks English. A one language, one world language, one world monetary system, one world government, one world religion. It's all headed in the same direction. Now, watch the idea that's behind it. Success. Oh, this will be gain. Boy, we're going to advance because of everything coming under one roof and getting it all together. Israel fell prey in their early history. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5 and 6, they came to Samuel, who was God's representative, God's spokesman. Israel lived under what we call a theocracy. That is, a nation and people that were ruled by God. That God was their governing factor. Samuel was the spokesman. And so they came to Samuel one day and they said, Hey, we want us a king just like all the nations around us. We want to be like them. We don't want to be a bunch of oddballs. But little did Israel realize that their very glory was to, be, to their being unlike the heathen nations around them. And the glory of God's church today is the glory that comes in our not being like the world that is around us. No wonder John said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And yet the church today is letting down the bars. And you go in many a church tonight, and I'll guarantee you, you would think you was out in the world somewhere. I got in the mail this week a letter concerning a program that would would encourage abstinence 
sexual abstinence to students be meeting at our high school here in the county. And uh, that's a good cause. I'm all for that. But how strangely men and women go about trying to get done what seems to be right. They bring in a rock star. They bring in a rock star from MTV. And that's the immoral television network. They bring in some guy like that and he's going to get up and talk about his faith in Jesus while he strums on his guitar and that bunch beat their drums and wiggle and squirm like somebody with ants in their pants and go through all kind of suggestive gyrations. You know what that's like? That's like giving a fella a sedative and then giving him a stimulant to follow. I mean, that just, it just, it, you butt heads on that. And yet what we have in our church world is the same thing. We're saying to the young people, we're saying to adults, we're saying to the people around us, hey, we're going to give you, we're going to give you a, a sedative and then we're going to give you a stimulant. Would you believe this, folks? In many churches, they have two different type services. One service is known as a contemporary service where long-haired, necklace-wearing, belly-button-showing guys get up, strum on their guitars and wiggle around and hear and beat out some jungle jazz and say Jesus every once in a while. Uh, they, uh, what was I talking about? I got carried away with that belly-button, didn't I? <laughs> Well, oh, yeah, two kinds of secularists. Good to have a good wife, uh, isn't it, Pastor? And uh, uh, here, uh, tell me again. Yeah, that's right. Have two kinds of circles. I get really tore up about this, folks. A contemporary circle, all that kind of worldly junk going on. And then they have a traditional circle. And that's for the old fogies like you and me, that just don't believe in dragging the world into the church. Now, I want to tell you this. The Bible said you can't get good water, uh, sweet water out of a bitter spring. Uh, a spring that's worthwhile doesn't give out two different kinds of water. And yet that's what the church has swallowed from the world. If we're going to reach the world, get out there and wall in the hog pen with them. I don't believe a word of it. I believe God would have us to be distinctly different and the very glory of the church is, is when we are unlike the world and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. People of Jesus' day cried, We have no king but Caesar. Do away with this Jesus. Our king who gives the orders is the king of the world. The Roman Caesar. And that's what is somehow the church is being dictated to by the world. Sit by and close our ears to what the founder of the church had to say. And we're wide open to any suggestion that the world has to bring. Well, Israel gained. They had them again. They begun to look like the rest of the world. 
But watch what happened. The king they got was not a giving king. He was a taking king. And that's exactly the king of the world. The world takes. It doesn't give. You just think it does. Uh, Sometimes my my wife gets in the mail some of these little coupons, you know, uh, that may be way off in Greenville or Atlanta. And she'll say, look here, I can save 30 cents on this time. And you have to spend 20 bucks driving to Greenville and back or Atlanta and back, but you're going to save 30 bucks, 30 cents on this item. The whole story is Israel said, we're going to be just like the rest of the nations around us. They had what was considered a gain, a success. But I read in Psalm 106 verse 15, God granted them the desires of their heart, but sent leanness to their soul. Oh yeah, he'll take the bridle off. He'll let you go on your own chosen way. But there is drought and there is blight and there is defeat at the end of the road. Old Nimrod, I was talking about him a minute ago. Oh, he gained, boy, I mean, the people gathered in around him. But look at the tragic end. Confusion. Uh, scattering of the people. It didn't work. Oh, for a while it worked, Yes. Look again at the rule and the kingdom that the Antichrist. But all the world, boy, I mean, he'll succeed. He'll gain. And we will say, boy, I tell you, this must be of God. Look how all the peoples of the world have finally gotten together. And we're, we're, we're as one. And in Revelation 13, however, it tells us that all the world worships. But the beast was empowered by a cynical power behind it. And that was the power of Satan himself. Then comes the terrible judgment of God, his very outspoken vocal disapproval of of that very thing that had been done. They had followed the philosophy. The world follows its philosophy and winds up beneath the judgment of fire and the wrath of Almighty God. When Israel cried, and I quoted a moment ago, and they said, we have no king but Caesar, they rejected Jesus. And now look at Israel's history for the past 2,000 years. Scattered all over the face of the earth. Butchered, murdered by literally the millions. They became a byword. People would hiss when the name there is such anti-Semitic feelings even in this country. And yet, why? Simply because the blood of the Lamb of God, they said, let his blood be on us and on our children. And God said, if you disobey me and walk contrary to me, I'll scatter you all over the world. You will be hunted and haunted and destroyed. And so... Israel got their way. They gained. The world would applaud. But they were a failure in the eyes of God. Let me give you one more to think about. Eve gained in the Garden of Eden. Adam gained. 
but it wasn't a godly game. They were deceived as I talked to you about deception this morning by the, by the devil. And the devil said to Eve, I listen, if you will partake of this fruit, of this tree, don't you know that God knows in the day that you do that, you will become as gods, knowing good and evil? Oh yeah, she gained, didn't she? But she lost. And so all of her children, you and me, experienced the curse that came upon this human family because of Eve and Adam's sin of transgressing the very command of a holy God. She gained, but it wasn't a godly gain. No, she didn't become like God. She became unlike God. And so does the church become unlike what the church ought to be when it disobeys God's word and frowns upon and sneers and rejects the doctrine of the word of God. May God help us to realize it's a futile road when we as believers walk according to the world instead of according to the word that God has given us. No, gain is not always a sign of success. Gain success in the eyes of the world, yes, but failure in the eyes of our God. Let's stand together as we pray.